You know, I just want to, I, I want to share with you, we shared this last week, and you go, well, man, some of you saw this last week at the end of the service, but we decided to play it again. I chose, I said, I want to play this again because I think it so captures in a sense of what's happening in this whole story of renovation with regard to Haggai. And I also was so proud because the people who put it together, Andrea kind of had the, the idea for it, and she talked to Lynn Krataska, who wrote the story for it, and then Heidi Etrium took the pictures for it, and Media Minefield came around and helped produce it. I just, I thought, that's so cool. You guys watch commercials two, three, four, five hundred times, so we can watch this twice, right? <laughs> and the reason I, 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 I was, you know, I asked Lynn, I said, um, she didn't know it, but she gave her notes for the storyboard to Andrea. And it's on this page. And I said to her, I said, you know, when I wrote her or talked to her, I said, you know, the, the, the thoughts you had are, for, are so good, I could just preach them. Because renovation, you think about it. I, I didn't realize this when I began to think about this series back in March. I mean, I knew that we had been thinking about should we do a renovation of the building and still don't know what the timing will be on this, but thought, you know, it would be good to speak into it at least from a kind of a pre-sense of, of talking about some of the renovation here in the worship space in the lobby. But what I didn't realize is the great renovation work that was God would be doing in us individually and as a community. Isn't God smarter than us? And as I was preparing that, and I looked at the thoughts that, that, that Lynn wrote here, I, I'm going to give her the... These are just... And I'm not going to use all these, but I just want to kind of start out by, with a few of these thoughts to let you understand, because you may be in this renovation process. We as a church are in this renovation process. And it's not always that fun. In fact, one of the thoughts is, is we, we can renovate and remodel, but God is the one who restores. Right? We can do all kinds of work, we can do all kinds of things, we can bring in all kinds of people, and we can all kinds of make these kind of strategic moves, but the reality is only God touches the heart and restores the heart that brings the heart back into alignment with his purposes and his will. Only God can heal the place where you have been hurt or wounded. Sometimes, I love this, failure of belief is just a failure of imagination. These are worth writing down, by the way. Sometimes failure of belief is just a failure of imagination. You go, oh, I thought to myself, what, is, what does that mean? God can imagine what we can become. We find it hard to imagine beyond our circumstances, right? God knows what those windows that were in that house could become. We just don't have the imagination, the understanding, the revelation fully of what God will do uniquely for us and through us individually and corporately. And sometimes the failure to believe is just the failure to be able to trust that what God sees is far greater than what we see. And he says, expand in a sense your belief and imagine what God could do now to, the, to him who is able to do more than you could, what? Ask for or, a, or imagine, says Paul. Restoration is a process, sometimes painful. Ouch, as you see that thing scraping off the paint or the sandpaper. It's a process, sometimes painful, especially if we don't know where we're at in the process. Right? You just don't, you know, you're sitting, in the, you're sitting in the house and you're not even sure where you're going to be at in the process. You've been taken out and you're sitting in the dumpster. It's especially painful sometimes because we don't see the end. 
Can't imagine it. And especially it can be painful if we don't buy into the ultimate purpose. Sometimes we're not always sure of the ultimate purpose, but here is the ultimate purpose in our life always. Not my will, but your will. And if we posture ourselves that way, if you posture yourself that way in your own renovation process, I can promise you the craftsman, the artist, has the ability to make you into something incredibly wonderful if your will is open to his will. And one last thing. I love this too. Sometimes we are the thing being restored and sometimes we are the tool God uses to bring restoration. Isn't that that kind of cool? Sometimes we're the thing being restored. You know what? You might be sitting next to someone who is the tool bringing restoration. Guys, your wife. No, anyway. um, Sometimes we're the tool. We're the sandpaper. Sometimes we're the knife. Sometimes we're the soothing coat of paint when the painful work is done. We all have gifts that we come around in this process and use. But here I thought was a very interesting thought. If you put the paint on before the foundational work is done, you only hide or beautify the underlying rot. Isn't that interesting? How many ever painted over the rot before? Come on, let's admit it. You, yeah. Guess what? God. He loves us so much. He loves his community so much. He will never, ever paint over the rot. He wants to get out of my heart. He wants to get out of your heart. He wants to get out of our heart. Anything that might stand in the way of the work he wants to do. And that's a wonderful truth about renovation. That's the kind of things that God does. That's the kind of things at times when you're in the process of it, you want to shake your hand and go, God, you've got to be kidding me. Stop! This just hurts too much. I can't understand what you're doing in my life. It doesn't make any sense to me. I just think of you guys in, in high school, in, in, in middle school too. You, you, at some point, you're gonna, you may even be in that point right now. Where you're going, I don't get this. I studied really hard and I still didn't pass. I wrote the best paper I could. I tried to be the best I could to my friends. I tried really hard to make that sports team. And I don't get it, God. But he does. And he deeply loves you. So, Haggai the prophet, this little, it's just one page in, your, in the Bible that is in the pew, if you want to look at that one. But it's just one page. It's the front and back. Just a little, just a, about... About 38 verses or so. He, he gives four short messages within a short time frame, four months. Each of them has a time marker, which shows you what was going on historically. Then historically, putting the exact time on things was an important thing. It was the way the annals of history were beginning to record it. Before, they didn't do that. It really didn't matter. Each message has what I call a divine stamp. It has God clearly... In those 38 verses, 25 times, Haggai uses God's name because he wants the people to know this isn't about Haggai. This is about God and the people of God. And so the first message is really pretty simple. It's given probably around September 1st in that day, about 520 years before the birth of Christ. 
And he just challenged the people to rearrange their priorities. They had their priorities wrong. They had things first that should have been really second, third, fourth. And he made this just a simple point. Close isn't close enough when it comes to your relationship with God. Putting God next in line, third, fourth, fifth, isn't close enough. He says, put first things first. Seek God and his kingdom, and all the other things will begin to start falling into place. So evaluate your priorities. And then he gives a second message. And this message is given about two months later. It's found in Haggai chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. We spoke about this last week. It was probably around mid-October, around 520 years again before the birth of Jesus Christ. The people had come back. 15 years ago had come back, and the whole purpose they had come back from exile, where they were, um, they were being ruled by the Persian media, media um, government in that day, and they were released by Cyrus to come back. The whole purpose was to come back to build the temple so that the presence of God could dwell among them, so that God's presence could be with them. They began to build it, and they stopped a few bricks up because they became discouraged, they became, there was opposition, and they stopped. And for 15 years, they had all the wood cut, they had all the stuff ready to make the temple. They really started into this project strong, they had their priorities right, and then they pulled away, and now they began to take the panels, and they built their own houses with the panels that were meant for the temple. And so he says, get your priorities straight. They start to get their priorities straight. They, they feel the Spirit of God encouraging them as a people. They start into it, and just about a month or so into it, just about three, four weeks into it, they became discouraged, they began to despair, and they were feeling defeat, and they gave up, and they stopped. So, so Haggai comes with the second message. He goes, here's the problem, guys. It's not so much the opposition this time. It's what's going on in your heart. You have a bad perspective. You have an improper perspective. You had misplaced priorities. You got those straight. Now you need to deal with your perspective. Because you're making some fatal comparisons we talked about. And so now message three. Now just another couple months later, after that second message... Possibly early December. Could be really close to the time we're in right now. This time of year. Early December, 520 years before Christ, Haggai addresses the people again. And he says, now that your priorities are in line, not your perspective's back, and you're beginning to build the temple, I want to talk about some expectations that you have. Your expectations are off. You don't understand as you're beginning to do this. You're not understanding that I don't really care about building a building. I don't care how beautiful you make it. I don't care about whether you can bring sacrifice to the offering. What I, what I really care about is that your heart's in it. What I really care about is that you understand the whole purpose that I came was to dwell in the presence in a building among you. But really what I wanted was my presence to dwell in you. Individually and corporately as a people. And so the first, what I call false expectation, the expectation they had was this, that in verses 10 through 12, you see verses 10 through about 13 is kind of the, he says, here's the problem, and then you go into the verses that follow 14 through 19 is kind of the solution. And the problem is, he says, you've got some, you got your, your expectations messed up a bit. There's two expectations they had. One was they had this idea that holiness is catchy. Somehow the presence of God is something that you can kind of just, it just rubs off. And the other thing that they had off on this was they didn't realize just the opposite, that sin is catchy. They, they kind of thought spiritual growth and the development of your character and becoming the kind of place that really houses the presence of God is something that just happens. And so he comes to them and he says the first thing is this. 
Verses 10 through 12, holiness isn't catchy. He says in these verses, in early December, in the second year of the reign of King Darius, this message came from the Lord through Haggai the prophet. Ask the priest this question about the law. And it's very interesting, he says, he says to the priest. The reason he says ask the priest is because the priests were the ones who interpreted. They were the ones who gave legal counsel with regard to how you understand the law that had been written in the time of Moses. Prophets had a different responsibility. Their responsibility was to reveal, to speak forth the word of God at that moment, in that time, for the people in their situation they were in. And so, the teacher, versus like the prophetic gift in the New Testament, he says here, he says, ask the priest this question about the law. If one of you is carrying a holy sacrifice in his robes, which they would do, they'd take the sacrifice, and it happens to brush up against some bread or wine or meat, he's asking the priest, will it too become holy? The priests, they kind of think back to their, yeah, let me think. And their answer is no. Holiness does not pass on to other things that way. Simply put, Haggai is reminding them of a lesson they learned in Sunday school. Holiness is not catchy. You do not pick it up by standing next to someone. It's not as if you're walking down the hall and a real holy person comes by you, someone that you really admire who, who just seems to carry the presence of God in them, that if you bumped into him, you go, whoa, wow, now I got some holiness. Anybody felt that way? It doesn't happen that way, says God. Spiritual life is not some kind of outside job. It's not communicable. It's not something that's just transferred. You don't carry the presence of God because you, have, because you come in touch with the presence of God. You can be in a service like this and be moved by God and experience the presence of God. Hebrews even says that you can taste the Spirit of God, and yet it doesn't mean that it's a part of who you are. Just hanging around holy people or holy place or holding a Bible or singing holy songs does not make you Holy. Carrying the presence of God in your life just doesn't happen because you come into the experience of the presence of God. It isn't catchy. Now, if you hang around some holy people, you might develop some acceptable behaviors, but holiness is an inside thing. It's an inside-out kind of work, not an outside-in kind of work. Does that make sense? Well, here's what Jesus said. He said it this way. Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can make him unclean or unholy? In the same way, the things you eat can't make you holy or unholy. For it doesn't go into his heart, but into his stomach, and then out of his body, and what comes out of man is what makes him unclean. So then he goes, okay, so that eating process, they had the ceremonial law, they had all these things, they washed their hands in certain ways, and they did that all as a way of not becoming holy, but they thought that somehow that happened. He was saying, no, that was just to remind you, you need to be holy. You need to carry the holy presence of God. Not because you do these things, or you sit in a church, or you hear the Bible spoke to you, or you read the Bible, you do these things. Does it necessarily make you holy? Only God makes you holy in heart. So that's why Jesus goes on. He says, for from within, out of men's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed. And as I was writing this down, I wanted to go, stop, Jesus, enough. You're getting close to us. Deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and foolishness. All these evils come from inside and make a man unclean, unholy. Something has to happen internally in our heart for us to carry the presence of God. It is a work of God that he does in your heart, and it's deep within, and he plants that life so it begins to transform your life.
To carry the presence of God in your life, you must receive the presence of God in your heart. That's it. Go to all kinds of services. You can be, or, you know, can be confirmed. You can be baptized. You can all those kinds of it. To carry the presence of God in your life, you must receive the presence of God in your heart. So that when Nicodemus, a Pharisee, came and he asked Jesus, what must I do to be saved? He was looking for something he could do. And Jesus looks at him and goes, only one thing, you need to be born again, born from above. It means that you need to have the presence of God come into your heart. And the heart is the controlling center. In the, in, in the Hebrew mind, the heart wasn't some organ pumping. It was the controlling center of who you are. It meant that that life would come into the place that as it began to beat in the heart of who you are, it transformed everything around you because his presence is now in you. John 1, verses 11 through 13, John says it this way, even in his own land among his own people, the Jews, he was not accepted. Only a few would welcome and, listen to this, receive him. To carry the presence of God in your life, you must receive the presence of God in your heart. Only a few would receive Jesus into their midst. But to all, he says, who received him, he gave the right to become the children of God. All they needed to do is trust in him to save them. All those who believe this, catch this, that's it. It's, It's not something you do. It's just trusting the fact that when you open your heart and say, Jesus, I want your presence to fill me. I want your presence to come into my life. All those, he says, who do this and trust in him to save them. All those who believe this are reborn. Not a physical rebirth resulting from human passion or plan, but from the will of God. Spiritual life begins with a choice. It's a decision to open your heart and invite God's very real presence into your life. So I just want to share with you, if you've never actually done that and you've, you've been coming and you've been involved, I don't care if you've been coming to a church since you were five years of age, It starts with a simple choice that says, God, I want to have you come into my life. I want to recognize my need of you. I invite you to come in. This renovation job of my heart is not something I can do on my own. That's that's a simple way to say it. This renovation job that I want, that I know, that I need because of the things that happen by the things that come out of me, which you said come out of me, I need something new in me that will begin to come out in a new way. And so I invite you to come into my heart. The whole purpose of, of God is in, in creating us is that we would carry the presence of God. Now, here's the, the next thing I, I want to share with you. Because he goes on, he says, not only do you carry the presence of God through a choice to receive the presence into your very heart, recognize the fact that you can't do that renovation yourself. It, it's a, an act of repentance where you begin to receive it. The second thing that he says here is, is I want you also to understand spiritual growth doesn't just happen. It just, it's just because you go to the church and just because you read the Bible, just because you're involved singing songs, just because you give some money, all these different kind of actions, whatever thing we do out of our own sense of we're being right or good, that doesn't necessarily promote the life of God in your heart. You can carry the presence of God, but he wants to make this point, and that is that, that, that only, not only do you need to, to carry the presence of God, but now you need to cultivate the presence of God. Isn't that interesting? You need to cultivate the presence of God. 
Well, just, you know, and he was saying this about you can't, you can't, um, you can't pass on holiness. You can't, you know, you, it's almost like this way. You can't give physical health to someone. I had a guy in our group, this, I meet in a small group of some guys on Monday and Tuesday mornings. This one guy came on this Tuesday morning last week. And, and, he, and he came and he, he was, you could tell he was not feeling well. And I said, how you doing? And he said, I got a sore throat. And the guys are kind of sitting around him. And he goes, yeah, I'm congested. And everyone's kind of looking at him. No one offered to say, come on, sit closer to me so I can breathe some health into you. No one did. Because we just know you don't communicate it that way. But we do know this. That that illness, that sickness can easily be transferred. We do understand that things in life, if not cultivated, can begin to break down. It, it's, it's called the second law of thermodynamics. And I w- was looking it up and, and, and thinking about it because I remember this from school. So school does a little bit. You remember things from time to time, but I didn't remember it completely. And the physicist Lord Kelvin stated, not Kevin, Kelvin, there is, this is, listen to this definition, there is no natural process the only result of which is to cool a heat reservoir and do external work. That's it. That's the second law of death. Isn't that incredible? Okay, I, I'm looking at you the same way going, what in the world did he just say? Here's what he said. This law states that the most probable state for any natural system is one of disorder. Left to themselves, most things ultimately break down into simpler materials. They do not ultimately become more complex. All you, all you science guys are going, yes, preach it. This carpeting, with its stains and everything, does not get cleaner on its own by itself. Do the fibers get stronger and does it become a better looking piece of carpeting on its own, right? Um, your Ford Taurus, guys, if you're driving a Ford Taurus, it does not on its own naturally over time become a Ferrari, does it? I mean, come and work with me here. Those of you who are young, about 50 years of age, you know, you're in that youthful place in life at about 50. You are, yeah, appreciate it. You are natural. You are not naturally getting less wrinkles, becoming more flexible, getting stronger muscles, right? Anybody here that happening to them? Okay. <laughs> A few, yes, right. Okay. See, left to themselves, most things break down. And what this scripture is saying here, what Haggai is saying in the second part here, is he says, but if someone touches a dead person so becomes ceremonially impure, then brushes against something, does it not become contaminated? And the priests say, yes, it does. Because just as holiness is not catchy, and it takes the choice of the will to invite the presence of God so you can carry the presence of God, here's the other side of the truth. Sin is catchy. Sin disintegrates. Our flesh leads to division, despair, and destruction. So we need to cultivate the presence of God through both conditions and choices we make. No marriage gets better without being paid attention to. No, no, no Thanksgiving meal is going to happen if you just put the ingredients out there and, and hope, Right? One of the things that Dallas Ward has said that I really find very helpful and I agree with is he says, grace, all this stuff, the presence of God is an act of God's grace to us that we receive. And in the same way, when we cultivate the presence of God, it is also an act of grace. It's a gift. 
But he makes this point, I think it's a really good point. He says that um, grace is opposed to earning, but not effort. We can't earn our the ability to carry the presence of God, to, to have God's life in us, nor can we in, in any way earn spiritual growth, but we can come alongside God and participate and say, God, what am I going to do to help create the kind of character where your presence can show up? This is a message the church needs to hear. This is a message people need to hear. What are we going to do to create the conditions by our choices on a daily basis so that your presence becomes fully dominant in our life. If spiritual life begins with a choice, then spiritual health grows through a series of choices in the same direction. That's what he's basically saying to the people. Not only does God want your heart in which he can give you life, but he wants your heart so that the life begins to grow within you. Eugene Peterson, who is the author of the Message Bible Paraphrase, wrote a book in 1991. I liked the title, and it just came to me when I was writing this. It was called A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. Discipleship in an instant society. Because we've been fooled into thinking that spiritual growth just happens without our active decisions on a daily basis in the way that we, the way we, we treat one another, the way we love those that we work with, the way we care for those around us, the way we respond humbly before God. We've been fooled into thinking that something substantial can happen overnight because we love instant success, we love immediate fame, whether it's Shark Tank or a reality show. We love the fact that immediately things happen, and we just want it to happen like that. Well, what does happen like that is the moment you open your heart to Jesus Christ, he comes into it. Life has been born. Now something has to happen. Now when you carry the presence of God, you begin to cultivate the presence of God. And you cultivate the presence of God through the kind of conditions in the same way with health. When guys back off, there's something okay about that. There's something that says in the word of God, sin is catchy, because he says in Proverbs that if you're around an angry person, you will become what? Angry. It doesn't mean you abandon all angry people. It just means you need to pay attention that sometimes if you're finding yourself hanging around someone who is acting lazy or is acting in a certain way over time, that does rub off. Holiness doesn't, but that does. So you have to, like the thermal law, you know, the, 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 the second law of thermodynamics, everything does break down. You have to do something different. You have to make choices in a new direction. You know, we just, we, we have this desire for instant everything, and I've shared this before, but I remember one time walking through a mall, and I saw a sign that, 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 in the mall, and it said, ears pierced while you wait. And I'm thinking to myself, what do you do, drop your ears off? <laughs> I mean, that's a draw. Oh, yeah, I can get my ears pierced while I wait. That's a good marketing advantage. Spiritual health is not an instant thing. It's not microwavable. It grows one decision at a time, and it can be very painful because you have to die to yourself. You have to die to yourself. And I can promise you, because God loves you so much, he will give you opportunities in your life to die to yourself. And then you have to make choices and set the conditions that say, God, your presence is what I'm going to cultivate because I want you more than anything. I will be undignified, as we sang, with a passion for God that is greater than what I think I want or need. 
We cultivate the presence of God in our life moment by moment, decision by decision, until the life where God's presence dwells transforms our life and our character becomes like him. One of the reasons I love our mission statement, I was thinking about this, is it's not to go out and win the world. and to, it's, to, it's, it's to know, follow, and become like Jesus because if you become like Jesus, if you are well in your being, you will do well and good and right things. You will be compassionate for someone who doesn't know Jesus. But if, you don't, if we don't get this part right of this becoming like Jesus so that we become loving people, and what does that look like? You know, I've shared with you before, one of the, one of the desires in my heart is in the next 15, 20 years, because I can be pretty intense, right? But one of the things I want to do is also learn to be a really joyful person. And so I, I've, I've made it a, a habit in my life. The conditions I've set up so that there's choices that are made is that when I get up in the morning, I've memorized a verse that says, this is the day the Lord has made, I will rejoice and be glad in it. And I will say that, and I will seek to allow that to begin to form my heart and my thought through the morning. It's not easy. Sometimes everything in me is against it. But something has to die. Every day, I will, as I journal, when I take time to journal, I will list some things that I'm thankful for, because I recognize thankfulness releases joy. One of the things I've been seeking to do is commit daily to tell someone as I smile how thankful I am for them. Because smiling and saying thanks to someone releases joy. You can set up conditions so that the presence of God can begin to dwell in you. If you carry the presence of God through this decision, now it's your responsibility, not mine, not your teacher, Not some spiritual life coach. It's your responsibility to say, God, I'm going to set up the conditions and make the choices that become to transform who I am. Another question I've been asking lately is what what would a good person do? Ever, ever, um, you know, it's kind of similar maybe to what would Jesus do, that kind of thing. But for me, the good thing works. Because for some reason that, you know, like it just hits me. Like, so the other day I was walking through some retail place and I saw some trash on the ground and I was about to walk by it. And that silly question came out. What would a good person do? What would you like if someone was in the church and saw some trash? What would you like if someone was in your house? A good person would probably pick it up. And so I went back, picked it up and threw it away. Now I don't spend my whole life picking up trash. Okay. I just try and listen to the Holy Spirit and create the condition for the Holy Spirit to show up so the presence of God can be most fully in my life. So the other day, it was late at night, and I live on a hobby farm, and I have some horses, and I, was, I had come in from a meeting, it was late, and I went upstairs, got ready for bed, was just about to jump into bed, and it just hit me, I hadn't fed the horses. You know, I feed them in the morning, I feed them at night. And that silly question hit me, what would a good person do? And I'm thinking to myself, you know what, I'm just kind of reasoning, it wouldn't hurt them to miss a meal, because I actually had missed lunch that day. I thought, you know, they can miss a meal. And then I thought, I'm tired. I'm not dressed to go out in the cold. And think of it, on top of it, they eat hay. Who likes grass but people from Colorado? Oh, that was a little joke. I just wanted to see if you're awake. Well, my horses do. And I thought of my father-in-law, who was a dairy farmer, and I thought of how good he was as a farmer, and I thought to myself, that's what a good person would do. So I got up and I fed those horses and I had to practice joy while I was doing it. It was a two for one. 
a significantly good person, joyful person, loving person that cultivates the presence of God is a collection of a seemingly insignificant choices of doing good and being joyful and seeking to love again and again and again. And we can talk all we want about God and his presence and all these things, but if it's not showing up in the insignificant choices we make, in our life, towards one another, and towards others. And this is just, we shouldn't be doing this. And then the last thing, he basically says you can't manipulate God. Going through the motions will not bring blessing. Verses 14 through 19, God blesses wholehearted obedience where you carry the presence of God, cultivate the presence of God. Because God says, the day you begin to honor me with your whole heart, I will honor you with my whole heart. His simple point is this. Carry the presence of God, cultivate the presence of God, and guess what? You will experience the presence of God. And you will experience the blessing of God. He says in 14, Haggai made this meaning clear. You people, he said, speaking for the Lord, were contaminating your sacrifices by living with selfish attitudes and evil hearts, and not only for your sacrifices, but everything else that you did as service to me. You were doing things in service to me, but you weren't doing them, cultivating the presence of God through the choices that are good and loving and, joy- and joyful. And so everything you did went wrong, but it is all different now because you've begun to build the temple. You've begun to start to put priorities. My presence. Before, when you expected a 20 bushel crop, there were only 10. And when you drew 50 gallons from the olive press, there were only 20. And I rewarded all your labor with rust and mildew and hail. Yet even so, even when I did all that, you still refused to return to me, says the Lord. What will it take for you to come to a place to say, God, I am going to not try and manipulate manipulate your blessing. I am going to live into the blessing by caring and cultivating your presence so that now I can experience your blessing. And the principle is this. When you get serious about the presence of God, God gets serious about blessing you through his presence. And so he goes on in verse 18 and 19. God, I want to live in your presence, carry your presence, cultivate your presence. He says this in verse 18 and 19. But now note this from today. And I love that today. He says it three times in verse 15, 18, and 19, if you have the 1984 NIV translation. Okay, they, they, I think they screw it up a little bit in the, the newest translation. Anyway. Three times, he basically says, from today, this is the 24th day of the month, that the foundation of the Lord is finished, temple is finished, and, and from this day onward, he says, I will bless you. Notice I'm giving you this promise now before you've even begun to rebuild the temple structure and before you have harvested your grain, before the grapes, the figs, the pomegranates, and the olives have produced their next crop. From this day, at this point, at this moment, when you made this decision, I will bless you. And what's happening there is they were tilling the ground. They had planted seed. They hadn't had yet the harvest coming. Jesus, God came to Haggai and said, tell them this. Let them know this, that from the moment they made this decision, from this day, today, I'm beginning blessing. And so I'm going to just, we've got just a moment, and I'm going to ask the team to come up and to close us in worship. So who's ever doing that, if you guys would come up. And I just want to share with you this. This is what I love about our God. Isn't it cool that he says, from this day forward, he doesn't say after you show yourself to be worthy for a little bit, after you do these things, after you cultivate and make some choices, he says once you make one choice, no matter what you've done, no matter what choice you've made, you have made it blown, really blown it big. He says today is the day that he will come and bless you. Think about that. Today, if you're serious about God, he says, I'll get serious about you, and I'll bless you.